because of the nature of the topic, it's a bit all or nothing. You can't just zoom in on a bit. You've got to cover the whole lot on any of these topics that we're given. Because of that, we're having to go at about 100 miles an hour. Have you noticed? Um, but I'll try and do my best still to be comprehensible, even though we're doing a lot of um, in information here. The topic I've been given is about um, Bible translation and interpretation. Here are some people on the left-hand side of the screen here, and they're translating. They're taking their time, painstakingly looking at each word and comparing it from one document to another and making sure that it's accurate. And then, on the other hand, here's an interpreter. He's doing his BSL over there, and he's interpreting so that um, the deaf community in the audience can understand. And that one, you have to think on your feet. Really, you haven't time sometimes to go for each individual word. You're conveying the overall meaning of what's being said as quickly and as accurately um, as you can. But for the purposes of the two halves of my talk today, um, which will be about 40 minutes, um, translation, we're thinking of the people looking at the ancient manuscripts of the Bible and translating them into our language and other languages and making sure they're getting it right and what a careful process it is. And when I'm talking about interpretation, I'm really going to be thinking about with our Bibles complete in front of us, translated into English, how do we make sure we've got the meaning right in terms of applying it to our own lives, our understanding of who God is, our theology, if you like. That's what I'm mainly going to be thinking about when we're talking about interpretation. So a verse to start us off. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh dear, as um, I've forwarded my presentation in advance, I think we've got a different uh, version of um, PowerPoint here or something, so some of the text has jumped about a bit, but never mind. Um, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Lord Jesus knew his scriptures, he knew his book, and even without it in front of him, he didn't have the big scroll the Bible the Lord Jesus used wouldn't have been in a, a book like this. It would have been in a, a scroll, and not everybody would have been able to have one in their house. They'd have heard it at the synagogue, and um, that's perhaps where the, the scroll would have been. But the Lord Jesus certainly didn't have it with him in the desert, but he had it in here. In my assembly, there's a man called Willie Whitelaw, and he's 93 years old now, and he's a great guy. When you go and visit him, he's not only aware of everything that's going on in the news and everything that's going on in the fellowship, but he can quote whatever you're talking about. He can quote the scripture about it. He can remember the names of all the people in the story, even the obscure characters. And it's because when he was young, when he was in his 20s and his 30s, and perhaps even in his teens, he was reading this book and he was getting the best out of it. And so now when he needs it and his eyesight's failed, he can still remember it all. You can't start early enough when it comes to memorizing the scriptures, if you can, and certainly familiarizing yourself with what's in here. So the Lord Jesus 
he quotes Deuteronomy when the devil comes to him and tempts him to turn the stone into bread and uses miraculous powers for his own benefit and his own glory. The Lord's ready there with the quotation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is the Christian's food. It's the food of our spiritual life as bread is for our physical life. And notice that it's every word. That's where the translation comes in. Every word is significant. And David's already taken us to the jot and the tittle in your old Bibles, the iota and the dot. There's the smallest letter in the Hebrew language over there. But even the tittle, the dot, the stroke, depending on your translation of the Bible, just that little bit at the end of the letter, which distinguishes it from a different Hebrew letter, even that little mark, according to the Lord Jesus, won't drop out of the word of God until all is accomplished. So the work of the translators is very significant, isn't it? Looking at these markings that to you and me, well, maybe some of you understand Hebrew. In our district, there's a man called Eric Archibald, and he's not showing off, but he doesn't bring his English Bible to meetings anymore. He brings his Hebrew Bible, and he's just as much at home in that as he is in his English Bible, and, and he understands it, and he can talk to you about it. You don't always understand it, but he can talk to you about it. So three original languages of the scriptures are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The main ones are Hebrew and Greek. And almost all of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There are three little bits of the Old Testament that are in Aramaic, um, a verse in Jeremiah, two short passages in Ezra, and um, several chapters in the book of Daniel. I'll come on to what Aramaic is in a minute. And the New Testament is all written in the Greek language. So these are the originals that when David was talking about the autographs, what he meant by that was the very first time when, say, Daniel was writing um, what God had given him, that very first time, that piece of papyrus or whatever it was, that's not around anymore, of course. Crumbled into dust long ago. Um, but, so we don't have those anymore, but we do have copies of copies of copies and they were in these languages. Um, here is Hebrew. Here's what we call the Shema on the other side. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, um, written in Hebrew. It's very unlike our language, which is why I've never got very far with it um, yet. But the, um, one of the difficulties is you read it from left to right, as opposed to the way we read um, in the original manuscripts, there wouldn't have been any vowels. So um, the Masorets, these people in 1000 AD or so that, uh, that David was talking about copying the Old Testament scriptures, they were the first to put those dots in, I understand, so that you would know which vowel sound came between the consonants. This sounds a bit like countdown, doesn't it? I'll have three consonants and four vowels. Well, you couldn't have the four vowels if you've been playing the ancient Hebrew version of Countdown because they didn't have them. Aramaic is closely related to 
um, Hebrew. They're, they're very closely related languages. Um, but it was spoken by the Syrians and especially by the Ah Syrian Empire. And we read about them in the Book of Kings. In fact, David has already referred to a very useful story here because the Assyrians were constantly wanting to absorb the northern kingdom of Israel, which kept the brand name Israel. And the Assyrians were constantly going for them. And eventually, they absorbed Israel into their empire. And then... They wanted the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem was, and the kings from the line of David. And in the story that David referred to, the Assyrian um, captain calls out, we're going to destroy your city, and he's trying to demoralize everybody, and so he's speaking to them in Hebrew. But um, he, he wants to demoralize the men, and he says that you're going to drink your own urine, and you're going to eat your own dung, and that's what you're going to be reduced to by the time we've finished our siege. Thankfully, the catering arrangements are better today. But that was the threat that they were going to make to the Jews. And Hezekiah's uh, men say, no, 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 don't, don't speak to the people in, in Hebrew. Speak to us in Aramaic, because we understand Aramaic. And he says, no, I'm speaking to them in Hebrew on purpose, so that you all understand it because I want you to hear this threat that I'm making about what our siege is going to do. So you get the point. They're speaking Hebrew. The Assyrians are speaking Aramaic. But in the next few centuries, things changed quite a lot. The Babylonians swallowed up the Assyrians and their empire, and they carried on using the Aramaic language because people throughout the empire understood it. And the Jews learned the Assyrian language in captivity. So even when they're continuing to write in Hebrew, the characters, the letters that they're using, come to resemble the Aramaic characters in later Hebrew than they do in the earlier Hebrew. So it's starting to influence the Hebrew language. And by the time of the Lord Jesus, it seems to have replaced Hebrew as the spoken language of the people. Now, this is a bit confusing. If you've got an older translation of the Bible, sometimes it says Hebrew when it really means Aramaic in the New Testament. So, um, because it's the Jews language, the language spoken by the Jews by this stage, sometimes it says Hebrew, but really it means Aramaic. And I love it because sometimes... The New Testament, written in Greek, you remember, quotes the things that the Lord Jesus says, and Mark in particular gives you the words actually in Aramaic. Okay? So here's the examples that we have in Mark. When the, he's telling the story about the little girl that the Lord Jesus has raised from the dead, he tells you what he actually said in Aramaic. Talitha kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. Isn't that a lovely insight into the Lord Jesus? We actually get the actual words that he spoke. Ephatha, be opened. That's the deaf man. And the Lord opens his ears. We get that in his own language, the actual word that he said. The Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus prays, Abba, Father. And Mark gives us the Abba, that familiar word for a father. Abba, Father. 
And perhaps most beautifully of all, when the Lord Jesus is on the cross and he's quoting Psalm 22 to match his own deep experiences of being alienated from God, separated from God because of your sin and mine, he quotes those words from Psalm 22 written a thousand years before, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he doesn't quote them in Hebrew, the language in which they, David originally wrote them. He quotes them in Aramaic. And these, these words just give me a little insight into the life of the Lord Jesus, the actual words that he used. It seems so directly to take us into the scene. And then here's the Greek of the New Testament. Why was it written in Greek? Well, Alexander the Great conquered Israel in the 4th century BC, and it was part of that empire of the Greeks. And most of the Middle East and the Mediterranean area belonged to the Greeks at that time. Do you remember it said of Alexander that he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer? It got it all, and he wanted to conquer more, and there wasn't any more to conquer. And so Greek became the language of the empire now. They scattered the Jews away from their land, and they scattered Jews in the different places where they were, in North Africa and other places. They adopted that Greek language. And when the Romans came, they took over most of their eastern half of their empire wholesale from the Greeks. And so Greek, at the time of Christ, more than Latin, was still really the spoken language. You know how in India, everybody has their own language in the part of the country that they live, and that's their first language. But if you want to communicate with somebody in a different part of India, you still use the language of empire, which is English. And so Greek was the equivalent for if you wanted to get your message across beyond Israel into all that wider area, it was still Greek was the language that you had to use. So it was a trade language, and it was an imperial language throughout the region in the time of Christ. And that's why when they put the sign over the cross, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, it tells us that they put it in three languages. In Hebrew, which it's fairly much agreed now, really means Aramaic. And that's what it says in all the modern translations. Greek and Latin. So that everybody who passed by understood the charge. It's in the three languages there. So what do the translators work from? Well, they work from faithfully copied manuscripts that were written by hand. David's taught us about the process. I'd have got the sack within the first two weeks, I think. You had to be so careful in that process. And what David was talking about there were the Masoretic texts that really date from that 10th century AD. And these were the oldest copies of copies of copies of copies of the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew for a long time until there are a few others the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. You know the story, don't you, about um, the Bedouin shepherd boy, um, I'm not sure how romanticized this is, um, throwing stones just as boys do to uh, amuse himself. Um, and one of them landed unexpectedly in a cave that they didn't 
suspect was there. And in that cave, they found more caves behind that and more caves behind that, and all sorts of ancient Hebrew manuscripts, including the whole of Isaiah and bits of every other book apart from Esther, and it enabled them to see that these copies of copies of copies a thousand years later matched these much, much older texts um, that dated back to perhaps within a hundred years, maybe a bit more before the time of the Lord Jesus because they've been so faithfully copied over the centuries. And then, of course, once printing was invented, you got standardized copies of these Hebrew texts. But even older than the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now come to a translation of the scriptures. Not into English, because there still wasn't an English language. English didn't develop for a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years after this. So there's not a translation into English, but we're talking about a translation into Greek. Remember, all these Jews have been scattered in Alexander the Great's empire, and so they need the scriptures in their own Greek language that they've started to use wherever they've gone to. And so the scriptures are translated into um, Greek, and that's what, when you hear people talk about the Septuagint, that's, that's what they mean, translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And there's copies of that that are older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. They go back to 150, 200 years before um, the time of Christ. I told you I was going at 100 miles an hour. I'm, I'm sorry if it's, if it's too fast. These Septuagint scriptures, these translations from the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, were commonly used in the time of Christ. And in fact, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, very often it's not them translating what's in the Hebrew into Greek directly. They're actually using that Greek translation of the scriptures, the Septuagint. They're actually quoting that rather than the Hebrew Old Testament. So they, the apostles had confidence in that. And what I want to say to you is, don't don't be like a rabbit in the headlights with all this information. You can still have confidence that what we've got here is a good translation. The apostles were prepared to use the scriptures in translation. And you can be confident as well about the scriptures in translation that God can speak to you through these. So sometimes people say this about the um, King James Version. If it were good enough for Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. Well, um, obviously Apostle Paul didn't speak English, nor was there even any such language as English. So don't ever let anybody say to you that the King James Version is the only good version. It's a translation. Okay. But this was good enough for the Apostle Paul, and it's good enough for me. So sometimes when people are translating the Old Testament, they'll look at the Hebrew manuscripts and they'll also look at this Septuagint as well to see what that says, to see how that interprets it. And sometimes that can help them choose between one English word and another. It's, it's a, a helpful tool. And very often in the footnotes in your Bible, you'll see sept, and it means that that's the reading given in that Greek translation. The Old Testament was translated into other languages in ancient times as well, and we have some of those things also to compare um, things to, and it helps the translators along. Okay, 
So now we'll go on to the Greek. And the New Testament was written in what's called the Koine Greek. And it was the trade Greek, the, tree, the Greek of the marketplace, not so much the formal Greek of the classical poetry. I did a subject called classics at university as my third subject. And it was all about ancient um, texts. It wasn't that same sort of Greek that those were written in. This was a, a more informal Greek. And it was intended to be understood more than it was intended to sound impressive. Now, I had the uh, privilege of seeing this. I'm just going to go back to a previous slide. Um, oh, I didn't think it was that far back. Hang on, sorry. There we are. This that you can see on the right-hand side, I've had the privilege of seeing that. It's called the John Ryland Manuscript, and it's a, the oldest fragment, I believe, of the New Testament that's available. It goes back to 135 AD, and it just happened to be in the, the library of the British Museum one day when I was there, and I leapt at the chance to just go and have a look at it. It goes back, they reckon, to 135 AD. So that's a copy of a copy of a copy, but it's very, very close to the original times. That's a little bit of John 18, where the Lord Jesus is um, before Pilate, and um, it, um, it's just that very early fragment. But it shows, they found it in Egypt. So it shows that if it was that far from its source, and there were copies of it in Egypt in 135 AD, we can be confident that John's gospel goes back to the first century, can't we? At one time, skeptics thought, oh no, John's a much later thing. You know, people are already convinced that Jesus is the son of God by then, and you know, it's, it's a very late manuscript. Not a bit of it. This shows us how early John's gospel was written. So, just skip forward again to where I've got to. Lots and lots of other earlier fragments, big pile of them as Brian and David were talking about. And there are complete New Testaments from the fourth century AD onwards. Now again, that maybe sounds like a long time, but an example that's often given is Caesar's account of his wars in France, his, his Gallic wars, Homer's Odyssey, they have far, far fewer manuscripts, and the earliest copies of all of them are much later. But nobody ever says, you know, when I was studying classics, nobody ever said, oh, you know, Euripides didn't really write that play because it was, you know, <laughs> the earliest copy of a copy of a copy of, of a copy goes back to 1080. Nobody was saying that. It's only because people don't want to believe the Bible sometimes that they'll say, oh, well, you know, the, the, the manuscripts are... are very old and they're just copies of copies of copies. Every classical thing that we look at is exactly the same. So people who don't know very much about it will say sometimes, oh, well, they're just copies of copies of copies and Chinese whispers has come in. The textual evidence for the New Testament is much, much earlier and there's much, much more of it than any by miles. So we can have absolute confidence that what we're reading in the Bible is what was written at the time. That's your take-home point from this slide. Another translation now, still not into English because there still isn't even Anglo-Saxon yet, never mind English. 
it needed to be translated into Latin. The Romans now have conquered and Latin spoken everywhere. We need a translation into Latin. And this chap, St. Jerome, he does that. And um, that's done in 405 AD. They make him translate the Apocrypha. He doesn't want to do it, and he puts that in writing. So this, this isn't inspired. This isn't in the same category, but they, they sit on him rather firmly, and he translates the Apocrypha as well. Um, but but he, knows, he knows the status of it. The, the Apocrypha are those extra books that, um, that David was referring to um, earlier on. And everyone uses that. But there are some early translations into English. So there are various parts of the Gospels, particularly still extant in Anglo-Saxon. The Venerable Bede translated the um, whole New Testament into Anglo-Saxon in the 8th century. Unfortunately, we don't have that anymore. That's, that's all lost, but he, he definitely did it. Some beautiful Lindisfarne Gospels, you know these illuminated manuscripts with the lovely letters and everything, they, um, they were in Latin, of course, but along with them, they did a plainly written translation into Anglo-Saxon in the 10th century. We do have some of that. Big name in Bible translation is a man called John Wycliffe. He worked in the 14th century, and a lot of the phrases that we have in our Bibles right up to now borrow from the English. This is a sort of Middle English period now. It's much more recognisable as English than the Anglo-Saxon would be. The problem with all of these, of course, is that they were translated from the Latin. They weren't translated from the Greek and the Hebrew. So they've got immense value and immense importance in actually getting the Bible into the English language so that people could understand it. But they are translated from what Jerome did in 405 AD. They're not going back to the Greek and Hebrew text. I'm going to have to zip along here. Next big name, really, is William Tyndale. And in the 16th century, he did translate from the original languages a complete Bible. But it had to be printed in Germany because the Catholic Church, by this stage, was not encouraging people to have the language the Bible in their own language. In fact, Henry VIII said, this isn't a lot of typos, this is the way he spelt. It is not necessary the said scripture to be in the English tongue and in the hands of the common people, but that the distribution of the said scripture dependeth only upon the discretion of the superiors as they shall think it convenient. So that was the attitude. Folks like you and me didn't need the scriptures in English. People would just tell us what it meant. Tyndale's famous response when somebody told him that line uh, was, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, how many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Well, that was a bit of attitude, wasn't it? But I'm so glad that he took that attitude because we can have the scriptures and we don't need to translate it from Hebrew and Greek. These people did that work. Perhaps the oldest version of the Bible in English that we still use is the King James or authorised version of 1611. And it's beautiful, and I use it very often in my own reading. I don't tend to preach from it anymore, but I love it. I love it very much. But words do change their meaning, and I've just given you this one example of the meat offering. 
trivia question. What is unique about the meat offering? This isn't quite true, actually. I was going to say it's the only offering in the Old Testament that doesn't contain any meat. The drink offering doesn't contain any meat either. But the word meat, when in 1611, meant any kind of food. The word deer meant any kind of animal. But the word meat meant any kind of food. Now it just means meat that's come from an animal. So the revised version realized that that had changed its meaning. That could be very misleading. People think, that's meat offering. Oh, they're, they're putting a, you know, a steak on there. But it wasn't. It was flour, it was meal. So the revisers in 1888 translated that as a meal offering. And the revised version was the first of those modern translations. Different philosophies of translation, and I'll leave it up to you to think which is best. Some translations are what we call formal equivalence translations, and they reflect the style of the Hebrew or the Greek, the original languages, and they'll try as far as possible to use the same English word wherever a Greek, one Greek word is used. And the Revised Version, the English Standard Version, New American Standard Version, they take that sort of line. On the other hand, there's what we call dynamic equivalence translations. And they're more like the interpreters, if you like, trying to reflect the style of the English language that it's being translated into. And they convey the thought of each phrase as a whole rather than each individual word. And they often read better. I like the way the NIV reads better than I like the way my own Bible, the English Standard Version, reads. But I think this is more transparent and better for study. But sometimes for getting meaning across, sometimes I use the NIV when I need to. Sometimes this can be a bit clunky because it's reflecting those Greek words that stand behind them. And the NIV translates it into fantastic modern English. And I don't think has ever been bettered yet. And then, as well as that, there are paraphrases that don't really go back to the originals and don't try and give you really close translation. They're paraphrases like the Good News Bible, the New Living Translation, and the Message. They're all really seeking a middle ground between these two extremes. Sometimes, translation involves a bit of interpretation. So, for example, in Greek, there's the one word, gyne, meaning both woman and wife. And in the run-up to the latest conference, this caused us to scratch our heads a bit to think, and some of the things we were talking about, you know, which way should we jump in each particular case that's used? So that's just an example of... Um, so, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, is it women or is it wives that are to have their heads covered, for example? You, you can see the kind of thing we, on the balance of probabilities in the churches of God, teach very strongly that it's women as a whole. Um, and the same thing um, in, in other passages of Scripture. But gyne, that's a that can be a tricky one. And so, um, when we're arguing that point, I try not to use the ESV because that jumps towards wives, which weakens the point. And I think the more accurate translation there, women, I have to use a different Bible if we're talking about, about a subject like that. But you can have confidence in your day-to-day -day reading in the English translation that you've got. But we do owe a lot to the translators. There's still work to be done. In the world, there are 1,320 languages that are still spoken, and they don't yet have the scriptures in them. 
and there's 82.1 million who speak those languages. So they've, <laughs> the Wycliffe people are doing a, a tremendous work and an important work. Now, I've only left myself five minutes to talk about interpreting the Bible, and this is the most useful bit, so I'm sorry about that. I'm going to go even faster. Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The word of God has got to be rightly handled. It can be wrongly handled as well. Peter gives us two warnings about this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If we come to the Bible with the attitude that this is just people's best thoughts about God, we'll not get anywhere with it. It's inspired directly by God. And when we disagree about things, there actually is a right answer. God knows it. There's not one single individual human being who knows it, but there actually is a right answer. So bear that in mind when you're reading commentaries and things like that, and different people say different things about it. We might not get to it. Thanks. <laughs> um, Graham's just held up a thing that says, take five minutes more. Well, um, sorry, folks. Blame Graham afterwards, but thank you. Um, there is a right answer. I'm not a postmodernist. I like postmodern literature, but I'm not a postmodernist myself. And I believe that there is such a thing as objective truth. We can't come to the Bible thinking that your interpretation and mine are equally good because God has the right answer to it and we just have to strive in our interpretation of the scriptures. Prophecy is like a lamp shining in a dark place. You look at the news at the minute, the attention of the world is focused on Israel, isn't it? And we have the key to what's happening in the scriptural texts of prophecy. Let's get into it. Let's study what the Bible says about future events. Prophecy is often a, a rolling program. It has its own fulfillment in the writer's own time. And we need to understand that first before we start applying it to our own time. George Prasher wrote a brilliant book called A Study in Prophetic Principles. And if you're interested in getting in a bit deeper than I'm going today, that is a great book to look at. Sometimes we need a bit of historical perspective if we're going to understand prophecy. Otherwise, we'll apply stuff to the future that really only does apply to the past and has been fulfilled already. Sometimes there's an immediate fulfillment of a scripture and then a later fulfillment. When Isaiah said that uh, the virgin will be with child, um, the scriptures that we get in Isaiah 7 at Christmas time, his contemporary audience probably thought that had been fulfilled when uh, a woman who was already a virgin had had a child and in that time God would have overthrown the threat from Syria and it would have had its fulfillment in the time. But we know from the New Testament that it had its real fulfillment when someone who was and continued to be a virgin 
until the Lord Jesus was born, gave birth to a son. You see what I mean? Sometimes there's more than one fulfillment of a prophecy. My friend Neville Coomer lives in a lovely part of the world in Fife. And when you look towards Fife from Edinburgh, there's two hills. There are only two hills in Fife. They're called the East and West Lomond. And they look like this from the other side. There's the East Lomond. And then it goes on for ages and ages and ages. And then there's the, there's the West Lomond. And there's the East Lomond. However, from Neville's house, you look at them, and one of them is immediately behind the other in perspective, and it just looks like there's one hill there. So a lot of prophecy is like that. It has its own fulfillment in its own time, and you have to look behind that, and you see it's got a fulfillment in the future as well. So the first and second coming of Christ are often together when we look at them in prophecy. You wouldn't realize that we were talking about something 2,000-odd years apart. They deal with them together. They're far in the future for Isaiah. For us, we're living in the middle between the East and the West Lomond, if I can put it like that. And the coming of the Lord Jesus will have two phases. He's coming for those who believe in him, and he's coming back with them. So, again, those things are often grouped together, but there'll be a, a, a phase in between. So we need to know the roadmap. Daniel and the other prophets talk a lot about the end times after we're taken into heaven to be with the Lord. And he writes about some of the things that will happen on the earth. And then the Lord Jesus interprets a lot of those key phrases in these chapters of his Gospels, Mark, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And if you're interested in getting into the study of the end times, start with one of those chapters, because that, that's where the key is, and then you'll understand a bit more what's going on in Daniel. The Lord even quotes Daniel in his discourse there. And Paul separates out the coming of the Lord Jesus for believers and his coming to deal with the man of sin and the evil of the world um, when he comes to the earth to reign. He separates those things out beautifully for us in First and Second Thessalonians. So once we've got all that, then we can look at Revelation and its coverage of the end times, and we know what the symbolism means and we know what the phrases mean. I would start at number two and number three, go back to Daniel, and then go back to Jesus, go back to Paul, and only then, personally, this is, this is the way it makes sense to me, then go to Revelation, and you'll know kind of what's going on. Nearly there. Another warning from Peter. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. And here's an example. Paul says, well, some people might look at this doctrine of being saved by the grace of God, by believing, not by works, not by our actions, and say, well, okay, why not do evil that good may come, as some people charge us with saying. So it looks as though people were resting the scriptures that Paul had written and using them to their own ends, and Paul was aware of that even in his own time, and it's happening now. 
So I'm going to just skip over this, some principles. Start with the place of the text within the individual book. To whom was the author writing and why? How does it fit into the Bible's story as a whole? And let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Compare what a tricky word means when it's used elsewhere. Oh, I remember that word when it was in another verse. What did it mean there? Christ and the epistles bring out the principles of the underlying laws. Like in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not murder. Well, I'm telling you that if you are angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. The New Testament comments on how Christ fulfilled the law and made further aspects unnecessary. No need for animal sacrifices now. Christ has been sacrificed for us. Sometimes the New Testament comments on the significance of the events we read in the Old. And sometimes the cross casts its shadow back into the Old Testament and we talk about types and shadows. Sometimes it interprets people as picture language for truth that's fulfilled in Christ, like Melchizedek and Solomon and Jonah. But remember that there are contrasts with these people and Jesus, as well as similarities. After all, Jesus was a greater than Jonah, a greater than Solomon. And the Old Testament sacrifices are types. It was said of the Passover lamb, you shall not break any of its bones. And John, when he sees the Lord Jesus crucified, and he sees the um, soldiers coming to break his legs so as he can't hoist himself up to breathe anymore, he remembers that they came to break his legs and they found that he was dead already. John thinks back to the Passover and he says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So you can look at Leviticus, you can look at the sacrifices and be confident these things are intended to teach us about Christ. And so finally, Sometimes Israel as a whole is a type of Christ. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. That was Moses' message. Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called forth my son. Now, I would never have thought of this unless the New Testament told me. But the Lord Jesus went into Egypt for refuge when Herod was trying to kill the babies. And it says, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Let the New Testament interpret the old. The word of God. Read it, enjoy it, understand it, and most importantly, obey it.